I think you can kind of compare that with what the celibate machine does, and especially the despot as celibate machine, insofar as they're they're um, instantiating the new alliance, right? It's like they're pushing those feelings and those intensities um, onto people, right? They're they're doing that. Um, they're sort of. In, uh, I don't want to say inscribed, but they're sort of pushing that out there in, in contrast to like sort of a more stable ego, I think, that you get with. He definitely doesn't have stability in his. Um, so the, the three ways to look at it, developmentally, knowledge is paranoiac because it is acquired through our imaginary relation to the other. Testing, 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 testing of autonomy, control, and mastery, thus leading to persecutory anxiety and self-alienation. That happens during the mirror stage. It happens as we're children. It happens to everybody. Uh, and we can; those things can become disorders or they can just be the sort of human condition. Secondarily, through the symbolic structures of language and speech, desire is foisted upon us as a foreboding demand threatening to invade or destroy our uniquely subjective inner experiences. Don't agree with this, and I don't think the Luz and Guattari do either. Uh, they don't view desire as negative, and they view desire as coming from within the individual. And finally, the process of knowing itself is paranoiac because it horrifically confronts the real, namely the unknown. Uh, this is the part I think they're really leaning on when they talk about sort of the paranoiac as uh, uh, God, basically, as as despot, uh, that he's naturally a paranoiac machine because his job is to organize these vast swaths of land. And the reality is that he doesn't know what he needs to know, how they're supposed to be organized, what they should be building, what they should collectively be moving towards. So he inserts his own knowledge in there, his own beliefs in there. But in order to do this, he has to you know, construct a larger worldview. And this is where the disorders around the paranoiac come in. And the larger worldview is that he's speaking on behalf of God. That's how he gets people in line. Uh, he's he knows what he's doing. Don't don't question him. Things like that. But in reality, he's got none of the knowledge he professes to have. And that's the essentially the despot. Whereas in the uh, primitive times uh, and and inside of that socius, uh, they all their projects were very much kept almost within arm's reach of every individual. It's uh, we were building a house, we built a cabin, we built a, a, a farm, things like that were very much immediate and agreed upon at large by the group, sort of through ritual, uh, through general desire, understanding. Uh, now, inside of the despot, it's a very different beast. And that lack of knowledge that is implicit with being a human needs to be confronted and almost overcorrected by uh, the paranoiac sort of desire to code everything and say what everything needs to be and how your desires need to be used. Can you hear me that's, now? Uh, that's how I'm reading. Yes, I can. We oh, can good. Yeah, I can kind of see that. I was reading it more in the, and this might even connect with what you're saying. I was reading it in the sense that the despot as a paranoiac machine which is interesting that they're it's interesting the despot has this quality of, of being a paranoiac machine of being um, a celibate machine and I think their body ends up being the socius right like it's there's there's both a lot of power there and a lot of like 
a lot of functionality. Um, but as paranoiac machine too, right? Like it also means the despot has the way of trying to break into the body of that organs during that first synthesis. Well, it's that translation from the primitive to the despot that I think uh, a lot of that comes from, it feels like it comes from uh, the desires or the broken. Uh, well, that that's the part. I think a lot of this is talking, this, this section talks about that transition and that's where my brain is having trouble. Like I feel, if this makes any sense, I feel what they're trying to say is that uh, there's a lot of different things that come. Uh, the the despot at one point or another, as he exists, may have uh, shown up uh, and said a whole bunch of stuff uh, at, at any point. But inside of the primitive socialist, he'd be seen as a crackpot or an asshole or someone they'd kick out. Over time, the pressures that he's placing and the inabilities for the primitive socialist to react properly to those uh, as as they go over time would have resulted in, at some point, the examples they give are Christ, Moses, these uh, large-scale spiritual characters who are fulfilling a need on a grand scale uh, that the prior socialist was not. And again, I go back to Alexander the Great and how you know his massive Hadrian's Wall, all these massive public works projects that he oversaw or his people oversaw or his people's people oversaw the great bureaucracy of the despot uh they're they're extraordinary and really the 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 pinnacle of that as far as i understand it yeah and i think placing ourselves in the despot society is easier than trying to grasp how the primitive society goes into the despot because um since the reference point for primitive society seems to be like these tribes, you know, we're kind of confronted with like, do we rely on the imperialism of capitalism or do we need to kind of think about, you know, how Alexander the Great would have taken over a primitive society, right? So it's a little bit more like obscure for me, at least for me, because I don't have that, that immediate reference point. But I think trying to flesh out that transition is really critical here because I, I think one of the key elements um, that at least is appearing to me is that part of um, part of their point seems to be like e- even genealogically, right? The despot is almost like a it's prefigured, right? So like the alliance system and the affiliative system, uh, which are respectively lateral and um, extensive. There's a way that um, the, this paranoiac, this this individual in a sense, kind of responds to that in a way that it's almost like prefigured, right? That it's almost like a, dare I say, like a natural progression. So a natural may be the, the wrong wording. I think I know what you mean though. Like not inevitable, natural feels like inevitable ties in with it. But I would say more organic uh that it's from the interactions of the things yeah because we go back to that nietzsche quote right like where the the evolution is the series of like independent yet kind of um mutually reinforcing progressions right like it's not natural in the sense of like the plant grows and it's just an individual thing it it seems natural in the sense that like Effectively, the despot and the paranoiac quality seems really important here. To me, this seems to be a question of power over those um, 
those rep those territorialities, right? The, the affiliated and the alliant, and the despot seems to be effectively. It seems to be that a, a power relation and a power opportunity is sort of prefigured in primitive society. That that somebody in connection with a group of followers or a group of people who have a, a sort of mutual power relationship or at least connection are going to take advantage of, are going to um, make a person the limit of. So if it's natural, it's in the sense that there's like a, a social investment that seems to be building toward this. I tend to feel like they're saying generally that as well, that there is uh, not inevitability. Inevitability is the wrong word, but that as these things happen, uh, as lots of different sort of things begin interacting and the machines, as they talk them and talk about them, are producing what they're producing, that the the issues between them and the problems, the lack almost, is what ultimately spearheads this paranoiac who comes in and says, oh, actually, I have the word of God. I know everything. We were talking about Steve a lot yesterday, Steve. Uh, but Steve, the despot, and he comes along and he says, I'm no God. I'm... Here's what we need to be working on. Here's what you need to be doing. And I know because I know all. And that, by nature, that that paranoiac uh, sort of uh, safety that everyone else gets to have. Because, again, and Lacan talks about it, and I don't, I, if anyone has anything to lose has written on paranoiac, specifically or Guattari, I was looking through and I couldn't find anything that was crystal clear on it. But if it's related to uh, you know, Lacanian thought on the paranoiac. We're talking about uh, that sort of uh, internal lack everyone feels about knowledge. That's a very nice thing to have someone come along and say, actually, I do understand what's happening. Oh, good. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Is such a relief, relief moment. And I, I have to run. I'll be back. Sorry, guys. I'll be back. So... I'd like to make a point about uh, that I mentioned yesterday about uh, Sumer and, you know, what they've more or less determined in anthropology was the sequence of events for the founding of the first cities. And, uh, and that was that people were living in groups of about 120 and then suddenly there was this emergent event and they started gathering in uh, groups of like 40,000. So, so when, they, when they look at those cities, what they find is that, that um, there is no palace, there are no walls. Um, all there is is the temple. And, the, uh, and so basically it's what Plato said uh, about th that era, which was that everyone was the slave of the gods and they were all working for the gods. And so the, it's really the priesthood that, uh, came first, not the strong man. And, and, and then what happened was that, um, uh, as you got these different city states, they'd start going to war with each other. And so then that's where the strong men came in. Uh, to they were the leaders of the army that was e either protecting the cities or going out and trying to uh, destroy other cities in that area. And uh, and so like the Epic of Gilgamesh is about a uh, the first one who uh, built the wall around Uruk, 
you know, one of the first cities. There's Ur and Uruk, and there were like two or three others that were the first cities. And so, and so this is, this is a, a different story than this historicism that uh, Deleuze and Guattari are telling us that they're saying that there's a direct trans, trans, uh, transformation from the, uh, from the primitive to the strong man uh, to sovereignty. And, um, and that's not actually what happened. So, you know, I think we need to take this kind of historicism with a grain of salt and, uh, and try to understand, you know, what Deleuze and Guattari are up to as they try to replace the historicism of Marxism with maybe a more relevant historicism, but still a historicism that is projecting a sequence onto history that isn't necessarily true. Out of curiosity, what do you make of when they write, uh, but we always rediscover the figures of the parent of this paranoiac and his perverts. Um, and they go on to say, give the example of the anchorite and his monks. Isn't that kind of like what you're saying with the priest class, like the anchorite and his monks? Wouldn't there kind of be like a, an abatus or a hierophant and their priests? Well, but 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 they're not saying there was a stage in between where something else happened, you know, and 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 you know, it's quite inexplicable why this emergent event happened. I mean, we can rationalize it because basically, um, in in that area, uh, having larger harvest meant you had to have a, co- a lot of coordination to take care of the canal systems and uh, for watering the crops. And so it seemed like the real innovation here was by everyone becoming servant of the of the god um, and the property of the god. Then, then you know, then they could do large scale organization that it took to have higher productivity. So we can rationalize it, but but really, it's 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 hard to explain why all of a sudden people. Um, gathered in these large groups to form cities without any fortifications. Yeah, I, I can see your point. I ask because one of the things that struck me about this on um, this section is that they seem to be so really like, like the alliance is intimately bound up in the political and the economic. But it, it struck me as really interesting um, that they take that they, they actually make the time to differ. Uh, to include a spiritual empire with the empire, right? So like, um, I think before you got here, I was talking with Brooks, I said, I was thinking more about Alyosha's criticism of me yesterday on my point that, um, you know, I, I made the point that Judaism seemed like a primitive society. And I think they're right to say that I'm wrong about that in relation to Christ, because the reason I said that is because Judaism at that time was so fragmented, it seemed to be like, you know, the, the whole of it was subsumed in the Roman Empire, if I'm not mistaken. But as I thought more about um, what Alyosha said, if you take it from the standpoint of a spiritual empire, then actually I think they're right. There is a spiritual empire of Judaism um, vis-a-vis the Roman political empire, right? Uh, there is, and, and in, in that regard, it actually made a lot more sense to me to see Jesus as this um, as doing the despot machine here, at least for the, you know, inconsistency with what they're arguing. 
Well, I mean, Judah was a kingdom at one point. I mean, when you were talking about Judaism, there's a whole history there that's very, uh, very long with a lot of different things happening at different times. And at one time, they were a kingdom. Yeah, and I, I was th- because they, they compare it with Jesus. I was thinking about okay, well, it's pretty fragmentary, right? Like the diaspora has happened, um, but you, you're absolutely right. You could walk this back to like King David, right? You could walk this back to King Solomon. You know, there does seem to be um, a despotic machine um, present in Judaism prior to the Roman Empire as a political rather than spiritual empire or as a political, spiritual empire, uh, however you like. See, I, I, I think that what, what we have to do is we have to see them, uh, you know, Deleuze and Guattari, as kind of picking out the most interesting things that were being written about the time that they were writing or just before. And, uh, and so uh, Bataille has a theory of sovereignty, that uh, appears in the uh, Cursed Chair and in other places. And, uh, and so I think Bataille's theory of sovereignty, and, and unfortunately I don't really know much about it, but um, I think that is probably the backdrop of their treatment of sovereignty. And so, you know, if, I mean, if we, I think if we really wanted to understand what they're saying about the despot, um, then you know, we would have to understand it in the context of the most interesting theory of sovereignty that was going at the time, which was that developed by Bataille. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't read Bataille, but it, it does strike me as important to understand that the despot and the bureaucrats or the, the this, you know, Jesus and the disciples, however, um, however you like, is happening in the context of an empire. Well, okay, so, so you know, so what happened was that there were these city-states and they fought with each other and they took, you know, uh, different groups of them would uh, take over and become, you know, a small country. And so the Middle East was... Um, this was happening all the time that that uh, there were alliances between different cities in order to protect themselves and they would raise armies to protect themselves and attack the other cities in the area. And so, you know, like on the Internet, you on YouTube, you can see um, maps, dynamic maps of the the. Uh, uh, ebb and flow of these kingdoms within that area. And it's quite, you know, it's, it's quite dynamic. Um, what was happening, you know, politically in that area, but, but, but basically the whole thing, it seems to me that the whole thing about despotism, uh, grows out of the consolidation of power among these city states, and so, you know, we'd have to understand it in that kind of context. Certainly that's what happened in China. In China, there was the warring, the warring states uh, period. And, uh, and so, you know, I mean, for, for quite a long time, I don't remember how many hundred years they were all fighting each other. And, uh, but eventually one, um, one state won and one emperor, you know, took over the whole thing. And he was very despotic, but 
one of the reasons why China remained united was that they had this threat on the border, which was uh, the Mongols and a constant threat of Mongol invasion. So they had to constantly protect themselves. So there was a reason why China uh, remained more united than, you know, other places on Earth. I, I think the consolation of power is definitely an important point. But I, I think they, uh, they being Deleuze and Guadri, I think Deleuze and Guadri do make sure to be, um, I, I think they are careful here because, right, we're talking about uh, the, the despotic machine or the barbarian socius. So what struck me about their use of the word barbarian is like, that's what the Greeks used to refer to the people outside the polis, right? Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, it's because that was supposed to be like the sound they made, like everything st- sounded like they were barb, barb. Right. Uh, so it's like a phonetic thing, right? Like you can almost see like the paranoiac thing there, right? Where it's a harsh, you know, um, unpleasing, unintelligible sound for the Greeks. But in that way, like I started to think, well, okay. But there were all these like Germanic tribes and in that you can see like a kind of parallel between the city states and that, which I think is important because they seem to be using as at least a, a basic unit of differentiation, the village versus the town, right? You've got the village perverts and now and in the primitive society and then in the, the barbarian society or with the barbarian socius rather, you have the town perverts. So you can, I think you can start to see that that, um, and I do think power is an intimate concern here. I think you can start to see how, like, even there you're seeing, the, um, you know, it's not just about the despot themselves. It's about the barbarian aspect of it um, as well. Yeah, as a, as a um, kind of very high level categorization, it makes sense. It's just that when we start, uh, my point was that when we start trying to apply it, um, you know, history is not neat. And so, um, you know, depending on where you apply it, it's going to either apply well or not in different cases. And um, but I I think one of the things about Deleuze, which is interesting, is that he tried to keep up to date on what was happening, you know, in these various sciences uh, that were developing at that time when they were writing this or just before. And, uh, and I think he was looking for the most interesting theories and trying to combine them to make a more in, an, an even more interesting historicism to replace the, the really pathetic historicism of Marxism, um, which, you know, couldn't handle Oriental despotism you know, had a very difficult time explaining how you get from the gift economy to money. And so, you know, I mean, they're trying to fill in that gap in Marxism, you know, by using the interesting theories that were happening, um, you know, in their time. I, I, I can see where you're coming from, but they are careful here, right? Like they... They do write, it is exactly in this way that Marx defines Asiatic production. A higher unity of the capitalist state establishes itself on the foundations of primitive rural communities. And actually, this might be a good place. To- so I'll just 
I'll just re read from the beginning a little bit so to get us going. The founding of the despotic machine or the barbarian socius can be summarized in the following way. A new alliance, a new direct affiliation. The despotic challenges the lateral alliances and the extended affiliations of the old community. He imposes a new alliance system and places himself in direct affiliation with the deity. The people must follow. A leap into a new alliance, a break with the ancient affiliation. This is expressed in a strange machine or a machine of the strange whose locus is the desert, imposing the harshest and the most barren ordeals and attesting to the resistance of an old order as well as the validation of a new order. Yeah, I guess there's a connection problem for all of us at the moment. Oh, is that what's um, happening? Yeah, I guess so, because you're um, cutting out a lot. Oh, I'm cutting out a lot? Two or two or two or three words and uh, jack got kicked out uh oh now he's back okay i'm sorry that my connection is bad it's interesting because in this uh section you're reading uh, it all always seems like um yeah there's always a need for the socius to be in another order like if an order falls down or breaks there's also always this leap this this kind of hopelessness that is used from the despots or the priests and uh, other groups to establish a new order order in their benefit yeah in the i mean i just think it's interesting that in the sumerian case you know the strongmen come in to protect the city and to protect the deity of the city they they don't they don't just seize power themselves at first but they do so in conjunction with the priests right yeah they they come in and say we're going to be the protectors of the city the protectors of the god the protectors of the people and fight off these other cities yeah and i think to that point it, like I said earlier, if there's, you know, there can be a, it seems to me if there were a hierophant among the priests, you would still have the consistency uh, with the despotic um, machine here. Because the point, right, is that the despots have their, their perverts. See, what to me is kind of cool is the fact that, you know, if you kind of look into Sumerian religion, they, um, you know, they had these mannequins and the priests would feed them. They would close them. They would take them on palicans uh, to visit other deities. You know, the, the whole city was revolving around these uh, lifeless forms that they were taking care of as the, if they were people. And so prior to the body of the despot being a, uh, you know, body without organs, uh, at the despotic level, there was this actual kind of just, you know, a mannequin of some kind that was dressed and taken care of that was at the center of society and everyone was seen as working for that inanimate thing. And I, I think I think you can kind of see that in 
organizations today too. You know, there's, you know, the idea, whole idea of incorporation, you know, strangely comes from slave, uh, slave ownership. When slaves came to the uh, North, they, um, uh, they needed to get their rights back. And so they set up this incorporation process by which slaves could get their rights by incorporating. And then that got hijacked to become corporations where people could share risk and, and get out of, uh, of, of, uh, you know, legal risk by becoming a corporation. So there's this kind of dead thing, you know, now, you know, with the Citizens United, you know, uh, corporations are treated as persons by the law. And so this dead thing at the center, which is the basis around which everything is organized, I think is a theme that started in Sumeria and is continued today with corporations. It kind of reminds me of uh, Kassira and his uh, steps in the evolution of uh, culture, because at first there's the mythical or the magical uh, yeah, step, then the um, aspect of language comes in as a first step of uh, abstraction uh, and at last the uh, scientific but nevertheless uh, all these steps can't be separated from each other all the time we have uh, mythical and magical uh, structures and ways of operating uh, hardwired in us uh, and by this we always take some things uh, or signs as if they are the things that they try to represent like uh, like a totem or uh, I don't really know the correct term but like uh, the figure of a person that is taken for the person itself uh, that's why uh, it's very hard for a lot of persons to, to uh, cut pictures from people they know and love or to destroy something ah yes an effigy um Yeah, it kind of reminds me of this. Well, I, I'm glad you said that because I had an idea recently to do with Kassira and I'd like to try it on you, Steve. You know, uh, you know, Lacan has these three registers, imaginary, symbolic, and real. And uh, we found an article which says that he might have derived those from Jung. But uh, it occurred to me uh, just couple of days ago that um, that you know the volumes that Kassira wrote are basically about those three stages you know he the first one's on language which is the symbolic the second one is on mythology which is the imaginary and uh, and then the third one is on science and the cha change you know emergent changes within science and that that could be seen as being on the real. Had you ever thought of that? You think that any possibility that that might be true? Uh, could be. I'm not uh, very elaborate with Lacan, so. Yeah, I mean the thing is well, that these registers are treated as if they are this just Lacanian idea, um, 
And so, but when you start looking for, well, why these three registers and who else talked about this? You know, we found a book where, um, you know, it could be associated with the, um, uh, the symbol, the Imagio, and the archetype in Jung. Uh, but then if you could connect them to Kasira and, and, and see it as the three volumes in Kasira's uh, philosophy of symbolic forms, then suddenly the, the, um, those registers become much more substantial philosophically. Yeah, I guess uh, the structure can be found in a lot of other uh, cultural philosophies. Um, I guess there is this kind of uh, triadic structure in uh, hidden in Spengler as well, uh, if I if I remind correctly. But uh, the interesting aspect is uh, in Casira, uh, he had planned a fourth edition of his philosophy of symbolic form, and there's. Uh, also a fragment uh, in his manuscripts and this would be the metaphysics of symbolic forms yeah i read that and uh what's interesting about that was you know carnap was um influenced by uh Kassira and husserl and so carnap wrote his uh, logical structure of the world and then that affected Kassira, and Kassira kind of revamped his philosophy to take into account what Carnap said in the logical structure of the world. And that was that, um, that you have a ba- what they call a basis, which cannot be described or explained. And then things develop out of that basis. And so you get, you get uh, these different cultural uh, elements that that are are based on the basis, and then and then what happens is that once the once that superstructure has been created over the basis, then you can go back and look at the basis itself, and also I believe the basis he took from uh, um, uh, oh what's his name. Uh, Goethe. Oh, I guess you're cutting out again. Oh, sorry. This basis he took from Goethe. Can you hear me now? Yep. So this basis he took from Goethe, and I think it's the work, the life, and something else. There's these three elements that he took as the basis for for his kind of trying to revamp his philosophy in 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 terms like uh, Carnap described. Anyway, I think Hasira's philosophy, I, I realized, I, I wrote this, I mean, I, I read this book called The Div- uh, Continental Divide about uh, Kassira and Heidegger's um, debate. And, uh, and so when I read that, I went back and read third volume of Kassira and, um, and I, I realized that uh, you know, you kind of had to take philo- uh, the uh, Kassira's philosophy with Heidegger's philosophy to get a complete picture because Heide- uh, Heidegger's reacting against uh, Neo-Kantianism and uh, Kassira was kind of the last Neo-Kantian philosopher. And so if you, if you take them together, you get this wider picture than you get if you just concentrate on 
Heidegger and forget about neo-Kantianism. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. But I guess we have to tie it back in some way to <laughs> Deleuze and Grattawi now. Um, and the question I have um, is, is there some kind of basis there for, for Deleuze and Guattari as well in this uh, aspect of uh, forming specific social structures that are broken down and organized in a new way in this despotic manner. I guess uh, in one part they are talking about um, um, the different structures from the old systems, the old lines of affiliation uh, and structures of alliances that are um, yeah, reused in the new system. Well, I think that the good thing about this transition that uh, they're trying to describe is that it's an emer they're treating it as an emergent trans transition, you know, transformation. And so they're saying that certain elements get recoded and transformed into the new system, but the basically the organization is is uh, different, and that that's why I like uh, Foucault's The Order of Things in that he, he, at the episteme level, he describes this series of emergent events that he sees in history. And I think Deleuze and Guattari are trying to do a genealogy similar to that. But, you know, Foucault was just, uh, was talking about just Europe and European thought, whereas Deleuze and Guattari are trying to have a more global view See, I think it's interesting that he said they they say that uh, the machine of the strange, whose locus is the desert, imposing the harshest, most barren ordeals, and attesting to the resistance of an of an older order as well as the validation of a new order. You know, they call it a strange machine, and part part of it, there they're talking about you know like the. Um, the way the Muslims, you know, uh, came out of the desert to uh, create an empire, you know, they're they're kind of generalizing from that to say that the, uh, you know, and the and the uh, the Indo-Europeans in general were a threat to the Middle East, and uh, just like the Mughals were a threat to the. Um, the Chinese, and so there's this dynamic between nomadism and uh, and se settled agricultural societies, and basically that's kind of at the heart of the the kind of emergent change that they're talking about. Well, I think it's important to keep in mind too. This is metaphysics, right? So, like the socius in that, and what's going on here is. Um, is a metaphysical development, right? It's it's not simply um, the, the, the genealogy is definitely present, but it's it's a genealogy in relation to um, the metaphysics. So, like, it's not it's not just the literal desert, right? Like Alexander the Great, his empire doesn't simply reside in the desert, but it resides in a a kind of metaphysical desert. It resides in a a sort of aestheticism or a sort of like 
exclusive, um, and, excuse me, a sort of exclusivity. That's why I like the example of the Greeks and barbarians where, you know, they both have their exclusivity. And even then, I think there's probably still some, some um, empire-esque fighting between the two. But uh, the, the point being that that's, that exclusivity is happening in relation to this, um, to the despotic machine. Yeah, I I think that there, that's one of the interesting things about Deleuze is that he's not afraid to make metaphysical statements that cannot be, you know, that are purely speculative, and then to found his whole philosophical approach based on the that. Uh, Tiernan asks, why is it strange? I, I think it's strange because it comes with a kind of delusion, I think, or at least a kind of, just a kind of peculiarity in, in the sense that, like, if you're in the society of the primitive or if you're in a society of the despot, um, or at least you're, in, you're there for the transition of the sociuses, I think that that movement where you're starting to see the 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 despotic machine in that having this constant um, deny this sort of like this polarization between the new order and the old order whereby the old order is sort of repulsed but the new order is trying to be validated right it's kind of trying to be affirmed while also affirming like a, a kind of um, movement out of the the old order right because they they seem to understand that as kind of an overcoating where it's like it's like Brits on, on top of the uh, the lateral alliance and the extensive alliance and excuse me and the extensive affiliative and there's sort of like a bricking over that into the the new alliance and the direct affiliative. So in that it seems to be strange in the sense that there's um, at least like a kind of double vision almost to it. At least that, that's how I understood it. Or like if you were if you're going into the aesthetic, right, if you're going into the desert, then uh, in the same way, like Moses, they give the example of Moses bringing a new temple, um, an ark uh, into the into the desert. Right. And that the this sort of a, a spiritual empire or even like uh, a political empire coming about there. Right. I think it's fair to say there's a strangeness in regard to like the, the the sort of the memory of the the Egyptian, right? So like this is the the, the previous investments, the previous social investments. I think um, as they're interfacing with this this sort of overcoating. Yeah, he says there is the essential. Every time the categories of new alliance and direct affiliation are mobilized, we are talking about the imperial barbarian formation or the despotic machine. And this holds true whatever the context of this mobilization, whether in a relationship with the preceding empires or not, since throughout these vicissitudes of imperial formation is always defined by a certain type of code and inscription that is in direct opposition to primitive territorial codings. You know, like for instance, you know, like, in, the, in the Babylonian Empire, one of the things they did was um, they would uh, 
move whole groups of people from one place to another in order to control them. So that's like why they took the, the, um, you know, the, 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 the Jews out of Judah, uh, into Mesopotamia, um, just in order to disempower them because, you know, in the new environment, they, they, they lost their power base. And so then they don't have to deal with them as a, a rebellious, uh, province. And, the, and the, 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 um, the Mesopotamians did that a lot. And then in the Persian empire, when they took over, they sent them back and they gave them money to rebuild. So it's just kind of interesting how the different empires had different, uh, methods for controlling their populations that they had subjugated. Yeah, I think you can still tie that back to like the the need for projects and that where the state is effectively setting up uh, projects. Like even in what you're describing, you're seeing a movement to and from projects. So right, like that that still seems to be the new align in the sense that you're seeing, um, you know, you're seeing economic and political power exerted. Yeah, the whole key to this this thing is. Um to my, from my point of view, is uh, sovereignty. You know, uh, the idea of sovereignty is that all of the power is centralized, you know, within the government, uh, and uh, and then the 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 uh, the king is above the laws that he prescribes for everyone else, and so and so that centralization of power. Um, is kind of like the key element of this despotism. And what's interesting is that, um, you know, I'm told that there, there's been only five democratic uh, outbreaks in the whole history of sovereignty. And, and the thing about sovereignty is it stops stuff from happening. So whenever there's a democratic outbreak, like for instance, in, um, in Greece, um, you know, and they they wanted a king, and they 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 kept trying to get a king, but eventually they 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 gave up, and so then they instituted their democracy, kind of because they couldn't actually uh, conform to the sovereign model for for one reason or another. But but once you get these breaks in sovereignty, where there's uh, you know kind of these five original democracies. Um, like Rome was another one. The Magna Carta was another one. You know, I think the French Revolution and the American Revolution, I think those are the five. Um, but but it, if sovereignty stops things from happening. You know, they can do the big projects like the build the pyramids, but, uh, you know, basically you can only do something if you get, a, get approval and it's hard to get approval. So, um, so, it turns out that there's these renaissances that occur when there's these breaks in sovereignty. And it's just a a kind of telling thing that uh, whole history of the human race is basic. There's only these basic five uh, original democratic breaks in, in sovereignty. Yeah. I mean, perhaps, because I even think about the United States and the role of like a democratic Republic, right? Or now, I guess for Republican democracy, whatever the it's supposed to be, um, 
there still does seem to be that that question of sovereignty there because I, I think of it in terms of and, and very much in this exclusivity and inclusivity, right? Because the sovereignty, as I think about it, is very much about the, especially the laying of borders, but the delineation of powers um, within that bordering, right? And that's not just the physical bordering, that's I think very much related to what they're setting up here, but it's development. Um, that you you do have this sort of you do have the despot, but you have um, you have like a kind of cabinet with them, and, and with that, they incorporate people. They, they so like this is part of the the new alliance, right? This is economic classification coming about at at a more powerful level. Um, the, the despot and their marches include the doctors and includes the um, the merchants and that. Right, so you can see this development of um, of power at this horizontal level in relationship to the um, to the despot, or if you want to use the, the spiritual example, right? You can see, I think. I mean, I'm going to use name of the rose uh, by Eco for this because I don't think I've ever been to a monastery or, or abbot, but um, uh, or abbey rather. But you can see how. In relation to the abbot, there is the sovereignty of the of the um, the entire estate of it, right? The land, the library, all the economic and political resources there, and the the monks are in relation to the abbot, but also um, that is in relation to uh, to God, right? At least for uh, in a Christian sense, for sure. So in that demarcation, right? different um, part of the book talks about how these different monks have these different roles and it's very economical in the sense that um, resources are involved distribution is involved and then there's the political struggles that happen and the alliances that are, are strengthened or um, counterposed therein so I think at least in that example you can see how how even with like I, I think it would be a mistake to get too caught up in the strongman um in in this sense right like the sovereign seems to involve um more governance of the sovereign particularly seems to involve more than a simple governor or governess yeah one way you can uh think about it is that you know the original organization was around a god and then the, you know, the uh, the kind of strongmen came in to protect the city, protect the god, and they organized power around themselves. And then so there's been these two models. And, um, you know, in Europe, you know, the first estate and the second estate, third estate, they were uh, basically the... Um, you know, the royalty on one hand, which was the strongman side, and then the church on the other, which is organization around a god, and then kind of like everyone else, which was like 99% of the population. I think the I think in France it was 3% were royalty and 3% were in the church, and, and most of those people in the church were also royalty, and then and then everyone else, something like that. So the th thing about the 
organization against the God, uh, uh, around the God is that succession it doesn't become a problem because the God's supposed to be immortal. But in succession becomes a very big problem in, um, you know, sovereign sovereign lines. Well, I think this might be where we want to try and understand this transform or this um, yeah, I mean, transformations by this transformation more closely, because it does seem to be, at least part of the reference point for me here seems to be going back to what the socius is in the primitive society. And I think part of that might even bring up the question of like, so right, like in the despot, we're talking about the despot and usually their God. So I, I, I think it might be worth posing the question of in primitive societies, right? So the socius and it, it is what and its relationship is what, because if I remember correctly, we were talking about the cosmic egg here and the way that that um, is related to the earth. Is that your guys' memory? So let me just read this part. It says, the full body as socius has ceased to be the earth. It has become the body of the despot, the despot himself or his God. The prescriptions and the prohibitions that often render him almost incapable of acting make of him a body without organs. He is the sole quasi-cause, the source and the fountainhead, the estuary of the apparent objective movement. In place of mobile detachments from the signifying chain, a detached object has jumped outside the chain. In place of flow selections, all the flows converge into a great river that is that that constitutes the sovereign's consumption, a radical change of regimes in the fetish or the symbol. Yeah, and this brings us back to what, the way that like the despot and the paranoiac knowledge is first principle allows for this kind of um, it, it allows for the despot to have this sort of um, uh, transcendent aspect, right, where it's it's like they sit above the earth in a sense, and, and there's this is why I compare it with double vision. Is it's almost like you're like with the the question of private property, right? On one hand, you've got the memory of like the um, the the earth as mega machine, and that was a different understanding of how to how land worked, right? But with the despot, now you've got a whole different. Um, you've almost got a, a whole different thing sitting on top of that, right? And it's almost like you're, it's almost like you're seeing them both at once, but the the one that sits out to you is the one on top, right? So it's it would be the despotic. Yeah, so it, it goes on, it says, what counts is not the person of the sovereign, nor even his function, which can be limited. It is the social machine that is profoundly changed in place of the territorial machine. There is a mega machine of the state, a functional pyramid that has the despot as its apex, an immobile motor. 
with the bureaucratic apparatus as its lateral surface and its transmission gear and the villagers as its base serving as the working parts. Yeah, and, and if I remember correctly, they put mega machine in quotes. Like it's it's almost like they're saying it's a so-called mega machine, right? And it, it, that stands in contrast to the mega machine of the earth, I think. Is it, it almost looks like what they're saying is like the way the despotic or um, rather the savage, uh, excuse me, the way the barbarian society is um, or the barbarian socius works here is that this social machine of um, of, of those three elements stands in contrast to how the how production in that how 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 this was all working in relationship to the earth. So one of the things we need to remember is that Lewis Mumford wrote a book, The Myth of the Machine, Techniques and Human Development. And I believe in that he uses the term mega machine. So that's why it's in quotes, I think. It's a reference to Mumford. Uh, He's talking about uh, Egypt and uh, there's a sentence here that says where the projects were public works such as irrigation systems and canals or the construction of cities Mumford referred to the labor machine and where they involved conquest he used the expression military machine the term mega machine connotated the social structure in its entirety Bruno Latour refers to Mumford and the mega machine when he discusses the development of sociotechnics, especially the modeling of non-human machines on large-scale division of labor. You know, continuing on from what I what I re- read before, it's, it says the stocks form the object of accumulation and the blocks of debt become the infinite relation in the form of tribute. The entire surplus value of the code is an object of appropriation. This conversion crosses through all of the syntheses, the synthesis of production with the hydraulic machine and the mining machine, the synthesis of inscription in the accounting machine, the writing machine, and the monumental and the monument machine, and finally the synthesis of consumption. Um, the mic is cutting in and out really badly, so we're probably getting about half of the syllables you're saying. Okay, sorry. Anyway, I just think it's interesting to go through the those uh, those various syntheses, how they bring that together as a summary. Yeah, I I particularly like the passage. This conversion crosses through all the syntheses: the synthesis of production with the hydraulic machine and the mining machine, the synthesis of inscription with the accounting machine, writing machine, and the monument machine, and finally the synthesis of consumption with the upkeep of the despot, his court and the bureaucratic caste, which uh, perhaps that was what you were trying to read, Ken. But, it was. Um, I'm, I'm sorry it broke up. Not your fault, dude. I do like the way that they're, they're showing this consistency, but also this development of machines in relation to um, the barbarian machine, or perhaps this is, part, is very much part of the, the barbarian machine. Sorry, despot machine. So, like, one thing we can take out of that passage, right, is that desiring machines and, like, even social machines are 
tied up with the hydraulic with mining right with those projects in the same way inscription is tied up with uh, a more formal accounting than we saw in the primitive society right a more formal system of perhaps credits and debits but also of of uh, stocking of inventory as well as um I thought this was pretty interesting too with the use of, of writing right so not definitely not an oral culture exclusively anymore and then finally like the inscription work of of uh, monuments right so in, in some sense right they're, they're taking the earth and um, using it to build uh, if you like representations or at least artwork um, in relation to the despot or the despot's god or you know, that could arguably be like something like even books, right? But uh, and then finally, the point about like the, uh, the celibate machine, right? So consumption is related to the upkeep of the despot, so taxation, um, the court, and the, the bureaucracy. What do you guys think of what the the passage they followed it up with? Far from seeing in the state the principle of a territorialization that would inscribe people. According to the residents, we should see in the principle of residence the effect of a movement of deterritorialization that divides the earth as an object and subjects men to the new imperial inscription, to the new full body, to the new socius. And this is page 195 in the Penguin. I guess one thing that's really interesting about that passage is, right, like, it's counterposing territorialization with deterritorialization. So it seems like deterritorialization here is like, is what residency, and so like therefore like ownership of land in some sense seems to do to the earth. As well as to uh, people. I like this line that says, they come like fate, they appear as lightning appears, too terrible and too sudden. Yeah, and I think they have a really good point there. Like, empires come from without, right? So, like, conquering is is very much in relation to invasion in some sense, right? Something external happening. I think they use the word zogenous, even if the internal conditions um, are sort of um, conducive to it. It's also the externality. Yeah, I guess that quote was from Nietzsche, Genealogy of Morals. So what what this brings to mind is the whole thing about the... Uh, the Indo-Europeans kind of like using the wheel and developing the horse so that they can, uh, you know, use the the horses to pull carriages and things like that. But um, but eventually the horses get big enough to pull chariots. And so once chariot warfare and, and chariots came before riding on horseback because the horses weren't big enough to yet to carry human beings. So, but chariot warfare was the thing which produced these really, really big empires. 
And so when the when the horses, you know, when the the army comes in on horses, it's like lightning. Yeah, and this might be we might be able to bring that back to the point about like social machines do seem to kind of at least uh, reinforce like not only empires um, and empires production, right? But there does seem to be this point about conquest here or um, um, I don't, I don't want to call it imperialism per se, even though we are talking about empires, just because I hesitate to use imperialism because I think it tends to be con- um, connotative of capitalism. But there does seem to be this point about um, creating uh, sub- subjugated um, peoples, right? Or non-capitalistic imperialism, perhaps, just to take out the um, the weight of that, right? So it says the death of the primitive system always comes from without. History is history of contingencies and encounters, like a cloud blown in from the desert. The conquerors are there. In some way, that is incomprehensible to me that they have pushed right into the capital, although it is no, it is a long way from the frontier. At any rate, here they are. It seems that every morning there are more of them. Speech with the nomads is impossible. They do not know our own language. You're talking about the, the Kafka quote, right? Kafka quote, yeah. Uh, is that from Kafka? Yeah, probably. Yeah, that's from the short story, The Great Wall of China, I think it was. Yeah. And I, I think that made sense because even, right, primitive society, there's going to be this kind of taking over. But even with, um, I think even with what the despot does, just in terms of, of establishing themselves as limit, right, by trying to become this, by, by becoming this new socius, rather, right, because this is kind of, this is a point about the unconscious, right? Mm-hmm. By becoming this, um, this socius, and, and probably the example of residency is a great example of this, it is about you know, the, the deterritorializing is about taking the people and, and um, I think even like desiring machines and that out of connection with the earth per se, at least the earth is socius and reestablish or, or rather over establishing the, the connection with the, um, with the socius of the despot. So in, in prehistory, the, the Indo-Europeans more or less took over everything using horses as their means. And they, you know, they, they uh, did raids on these older uh, uh, despotic kingdoms that were in, um, in the Middle East. In fact, like 1200, the Sea Peoples came in and 
1200 BC and more or less destroyed most of the cities um, in the in the Middle East. And what's interesting is I realized that the uh, the Iliad, the fall of Troy, that was kind of like a mythology uh, that was like a prototype for the destruction of all the those older cities in the Middle East around 1200, because the Sea Peoples were the ones that came in, and so they basically uh, arrive by boats and gang up on cities one at a time and destroy them. So it's kind of interesting that the myth of the Iliad is kind of like a prototype for what happened all over the Middle East uh, in, in around 1200 BC. And careful, uh, the fall of Troy is not in the Homer's Iliad. Uh, well, there's an extension to the poem that tells the whole story. From Homer? No. There's a there's a a later poet wrote the rest of the Iliad. Not the it's not the Iliad, but it, the Iliad is half the story, and a later poet wrote the rest of it. So there's it goes the Iliad and then this other poet uh, poet who wrote the rest of it uh, that story of the taking of Troy and then the Odyssey came after that. So we we know the story even though it's not Homer. Yes, but because we're talking different poets like I have to imagine the the probably the poem you're referencing deals with Achilles in a different way than Homer does. Although, if we wanted to bring this back to D&G, I think you could apply um, the despot to, um, to Agamemnon in the Iliad. In some ways, at least. I, I have to do a lot of work to validate that interpretation, but I suspect you probably could bring that back because private property and, like, private property is, is like, integral to that... Um, to that story, or at least to the to Homer's poetry. But um, uh, Tiern and, and uh, Begum have some questions. So Tiernan writes, uh, quote, the territorialization that divides the earth as an object and subjects men to the new imperial inscription, end quote. So the stage machine created the subject object distinction, LOL kind of right like it's 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 just a different object and subject right so like the earth is no longer socius for the dust in in the despotic um uh, machine right like the the point of the deterritorialization is to allow for the establishment um of the new relationship to the uh, to the barbarian socius at least as i understood it Begum writes, I don't understand how the contingencies that they come up can come up with a sequence. It made sense to me with a certain socius how it changed from primitive to despotic. But they say that death always come from with that the death always comes from without. 
I have the same problem, but I think it is because their universe and history is retrospective. It's like they are only noting the necessary conditions. Do you mean like a sequence from the primitive to the despotic to um, what I imagine is going to be capitalism, like that sequence? Yeah, and we might have to go back to the beginning of chapter three to see how they're going to work that out. But I think because they're doing a genealogy, I think you're right to note that they're looking at how the conditions are changing and are condu what they're conducive and unconducive to. But they're also tracing, um, right, they're also tracing the socius and the way that things are territorialized and deterritorialized and perhaps even re-territorialized, right? So, like, part of the way this, this despotic um, territorializing seems to happen that seems to be that, like, the despot establishes the, the first principle of uh, paranoiac knowledge. And this is kind of what Brooks was talking about, where the, although it's more than just the despot's knowledge, it's the paranoiac knowledge, right? It seems to be a point about, like, that the knowledge itself serves to further this paranoiac um, direct filiation. So it cuts off the extensiveness of the previous filiation. You have the previous filiation, right? So it's a lot more, I think, perhaps linear, um, or it's a lot more important to be absolutely direct in relation to the, um, the despot and the bureaucracy, or rather those those who are in the bureaucracy and their filiation upwards as opposed to going toward the earth or the ancestor and the way that alliances are no longer lateral but they're now in this new sense and in that way it's more intimately tied up with um with that of the political and economical bureaucracy so right there you can see the the genealogical um continuity Right, that's the, those are the transformations we're seeing. And that's why I say it's genealogy in relationship to metaphysics, is it's, it is still a genealogy, but it's more explicit about the metaphysics than, um, I mean, Foucault says he's doing a critical onto, ontological project, right? So he does have a metaphysical that's a point and that explicit um, statement of it. But he's not doing metaphysics at this level that Deleuze and Guattari are doing, especially in relation to the unconscious. Were there other points you guys wanted to, to get into? We still have about a half hour. Although I may have to take off early because I've got to get to um, got to get to that job. Okay, but now I'm here. What are we talking about? <laughs> Lou, you're alive. We're talking yeah, about... Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I didn't really say anything. Oh, as I say, we're talking chapter three, section six. So we're, we're just kind of going into some of the points about um, uh, territorialization and like the sort of like the point about the genealogy of like uh, the socius here where the, the primitive um, 
Socius of the Earth moves toward the primitive, or I'm sorry, the uh, the despotic, or I'm sorry, the barbarian Socius. Yeah, okay, it feels kind of bad uh, having missed basically everything that was said and coming in now, like... Well, actually, that's the opportunity of it, though. Um, what did, what stood out to you in this section? That's a good question. Kent and I were we, we've gone over quite a bit of our our points of interest. Maybe you can um, uh, take us into some of your thoughts. So I was still kind of hung up on how this section relates to the Nietzsche essay, but haven't really gotten far with it. Could you maybe, um, that might be an interesting place to move then. Could you tell us more about um, maybe like the allusions that they're, or the, 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 the direct quotations they're taking from Nietzsche and kind of like what you see happening here? I think I have to look for the text. I'm I'm not prepared. <laughs> uh, neither are we. We but we just keep talking. <laughs> okay, I I found the uh, the poet who wrote the uh, Quintus Smyrnus. He wrote the uh, the poem. <laughs> That's the transition between the uh, Iliad and the Odyssey. So if you want to know what happened in between in poetic form, then his he, he's done it. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to treat that sort of like I treat the Bible in the sense that multiple poets, multiple sort of thetic ideas, right? Or at least that's me because like, Homer's Iliad is doing a lot of stuff through its poetry. And I don't think it's meant to be historiographic, or at least not purely, right? Like when when I read it, it seemed to be it seemed to be a criticism, and this is why I think you might even be able to tie it to some of this section. It seemed to be a criticism of um of a lot of the Greek um system, right? So like the system that puts Agamemnon in power um, by like virtue of, but really by virtue of his filiation, right? And because he had the most stuff. So because he owned, you know, th th this is the point about private property, right? And why it's so important during the Iliad that um, the people you kill, you take their stuff, right? So like when Patroclus is slain, that's why it's so important for Hector to take his armor. Um, at least in one sense, is that's that's part of the. Um, I guess that'd be more part of the alliance structure. Is that it's 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 um, taking resources, right? It's taking something that um, has this economic and political context, but also has like the point about this is Achilles' armor, right? So it's got the it indicates his affiliation with. Um, with divinity, right? Because he's a, a sort of demigod. But 
I don't know if we want to go too much further into the Iliad, but I think you can kind of see the points about the 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 the, uh, the, the despotic socius there and these kind of like um, the affiliative and alliant um, aspects there. Tiernan writes, so I was going to ask about the overcoating and the uh, quote unquote bricks. Generally, I don't really know they. I don't really know what they are talking about when they talk of Brits. Uh, I remember reading the section on Brits of Code, I think in the first chapter, and not making much sense of it. So I see on page 196 that the primitive coded flows can subsist, but they become embedded Brits on the inscription of the state. This is the overcoding, but how exactly? So there's a few passages that come to mind here, but one of them is, uh, but the state operates by means of euphemism. The pseudo-territoriality is the product of an effective deterritorialization that substitutes abstract signs for the signs of the earth. And that makes the earth itself into the object of a state ownership of property or an ownership held by the state's richest servants and officials. There is no great change from this point of view when the state no longer does anything more than guarantee the private property of a ruling class that becomes distinct from the state. So part of it is like, you can kind of see how there's this, um, I mean, they call it a pseudo-territoriality, but it, that's the product of the, the, the territorialization. There's the abstract signs um, that take the place of the signs of the earth. So I think that's part of the overcoding is it's like, because they're abstracted um, or they're working abstractly, right? Like it's it's almost like they're sitting at the top um, the earth in that way. And in that sense, the earth is deterritorialized um, as the socius, right? As the producing product identity, or at least um, if you wanna walk it all the way back to the, the that point about the body of the organs. And it's taken into, um, taken as an object in relation to the um, the barbarian socius. Well, I, I think of the Brits too, like it's really useful when you think about it in relation to the Kafka story, just because, right, the, the Great Wall of China is made of Brits. So from a certain standpoint, because, because they quoted Kafka in the sense of like, it, it, I think the quote from Kafka is and meant to show us the kind of changing of the guard. Um, in that way, I think what we're seeing is the way that the Brits are still being laid over the old Brits, right? The new Brits are laid over the old Brits. And that is to say that the old system of affiliation and alliance is not destroyed or done away with, but it is de- it's deterritorialized in the sense that it's um, it's going to be repurposed in relation to the um, the barbarian socius, at least that's how I'm reading it. It's like what's what's going to be built in relation to the barbarian socius is very much going to be built over um, that of the primitive society or of um, the previous empire. It's going to be over, over built over it. Or put it in a different way, right? Like because of the, the point about cathetsis and social investment, those social investments don't just go away, 
But as new flows of, um, as new investments are made, right, they're going to be made, and this is why I think it's appropriate to call the machine of the strange, they're going to be made sort of in relation to those previous investments, but also like in a way that sort of overrides them. So it, it doesn't negate them, it affirms them, but it creates this this kind of tension. Yeah, it is a really interesting rhetorical question. Like, And I, I wasn't exactly sure what to do with it myself if they were saying like, isn't this kind of what feudalism is? Or maybe this, you know, it isn't quite feudalism, right? Maybe it's, there's another development that happens. But, uh, what did you think about the the question, Kent? Well, the, the the thing that's interesting is that the feudal system came out of this historical dieback that happened in Europe because of the plagues. Basically, what happened was all of the cities were depopulated, and the only people who survived were those people who went out into the country. And so the the reason they had feudalism was that that you know. These feudal fiefdoms were set up as all independent of each other out in the country because of this plague and the loss of population generally after the fall of the Roman Empire. But European Europeans kind of when they were thinking about history thought that feudalism was a, uh, a kind of natural stage in some way rather than thinking of it as a kind of unique thing that ha- just happened a few places on the earth. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping they, they get into this because it's one of the questions I had after reading this was like, and obviously it's probably too soon to ask this question, but is there going to be a different kind of socius in the, the feudal society? Um, or does it actually go in this three-stage movement of um, primitive, uh, barbarian, and then um, capitalism. Yeah, so in Europe, the feudalism was another stage that was in between capitalism and, you know, like the Roman Empire. And so it's another thing. That kind of brings us back to this question of what are they doing here, right? Like, I, I don't think they actually write a history book. <laughs> like, that's not what they try to do. Yeah, I agree with you. It's um, The reason I ask that question is, it, it leads me to wonder, um, just kind of like, how to think about feudalism in that regard. Would it, would it for instance, could one take anti-Oedipus into feudalism and perhaps there might be this fourth um, this fourth development but I think to your point too like and I think this will probably become clear by the end of the chapter I'm sure there's a reason they're focusing on these three developments yeah so yeah first uh, that's kind of the approach I'm taking, like I'm kind of waiting to finish this chapter before I'm really getting into trying to figure out what the whole picture is. <laughs> like, 
I, I think we're missing some context for where this is going to really see how much of a progression this actually is. But if we take um, the 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 queue from Holland and consider these constructions they present your ideal types which which basically have to accept that everything that we actually can find empirically has to be um, a mix of things and what we are looking here for are um, the elements that are rearranged later to constitute capitalism and capitalist production. Like that's the important thing. We we or no, that's probably not the important thing. Like no, that that sounds wrong. Okay, no, that sounds wrong. There's 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 something about about um, <laughs> difference <laughs> there that sounds. Uh, like that sounded like we are looking for identities and that's I, I don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> well you know uh, Popper wrote a book called The Poverty of Historicism and basically it was against yeah but Popper is dialectical Popper. materialism as a historicism You were going to say? Can't we can't really hear you? I think you are talking, but um, we do not hear you. Okay, let me try again. Um, uh, the uh, you know, Popper wrote this book, uh, "Poverty of Historicism Against Dialectical uh, Historicism," and. Um, you know, I mean, basically, he makes the point that all of these historicisms fail because history is too rich to be covered by any kind of like abstract conceptual system. Yeah, I I don't know that book by Popper, but from what I've gathered, his critique of like. It's, his critique is weak and not really what uh, the post-structuralists are after. Like, I think if we are looking for critique of historicism, we would need to look for Foucault's critique, not for Popper. Oh, I agree with you. I, I'm just saying that, you know, if we view this as a historicism, you know, actual stages that you have to go through then it's going to run into all kinds of problems, you know. But um, but the way I look at it is that it's, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to pull together all of the interesting things that were being done in France on these different issues and kind of weave a, weave a, uh, a story that is a better story than, you know, uh, that like dialectical materialism that was developed for Marxism. This is trying to develop a, 
a more interesting story of diverse elements that were available uh, in, in scholarship of their time. Yeah, okay. Maybe trying to clear up what I said earlier, like if we take the concept of genealogy and we kind of take it in the way that Nietzsche use or what Nietzsche says, he doesn't really talk much about genealogy as a thing, but if we take what he outlines in genealogy of morals and what they are continuously refer referencing here and what they have said so far, then maybe what I said earlier about they are looking for the, the pieces or the bricks that later are rearranged to, um, to, to, to the capitalist mode of production um, isn't so wrong. Um, but the important thing is, and that's kind of the critique of Marxism and of um, psychoanalysis alike or structuralist anthropology maybe even um, is that these pieces meant something different or something radical di radically different than they mean now in their previous appearances or, or, or when they um, appeared in other contexts Like this is kind of what what Nietzsche um, outlines with um, um, in this one section where it actually talks about the history of things. I, I would need to go back to the text there. I think they actually reference this somewhere in either this section or the last one. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're right. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're trying to come up with a kind of genealogy. Um, and it's a really interesting one. I mean, uh, you know, because they're pulling together a lot of different elements um, to create this picture of what, you know, what pre-capitalism was like, you know, what were the emergent events that occurred in the pre-capitalist era to get us to capitalism. That's what they're trying yeah, but to do. That's kind of the point, right? Um, that's not really what a genealogy does, or at least I don't think it is. Like, it doesn't really outline how we got here. We, it just outlines what the things we see now were in the past or were in different contexts. Like, it's not really a causality or even a progression as much as it shows how... Um, Uh, how how things can be rearranged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to that point, it's how things are changing and how, if you want to be Foucaultian about it, you can think about the quadrille, right? What's coming into visibility and then what's leaving visibility and how these stack atop each other. Yeah, but distinctly not causal. And I'm not sure how much we are actually... Like, what I haven't really figured out is... Um, how this works with actually writing history, like, or writing the genealogy, like, um, 
because this this process of writing this genealogy is not transparent. Yeah, they don't make the Foucaultian move and give us like a methodology, right? At least not a methodology of genealogy. They just sort of do it. But I agree with you. The, the causality is it's... I don't think the genealogy is working in terms of like an Aristotelian causality. I, I do agree with you on that. For the methodology, we might... Like, with all the um, allusions to Nietzsche's essay, and even, I think, in the last section they talked about Foucault, or in the section before that. Yeah, he's mentioned here. In, in this section, they mentioned Foucault, and I, I believe you gave us, it was yesterday, you told us it was the Will to Knowledge, I think, was the lecture series. Yeah, we'll do now. On page 197, they mention Foucault. No, I, I mean, the thing is that, that they're trying to portray that there's these emergent events that occurred where most things changed, things got reorganized in a radically different way. Um... And, and they're trying to explain how you got from the primitive, as understood by, say, Levi-Strauss and uh, Dumazil, maybe, to the, uh, you know, through, through the barbaric machine, which is sovereignty, to the capitalist machine. Yeah, and, and in that way, right, like, it's... This is kind of why I mentioned Foucault's quadrille. Like, you do have this stacking um, in the sense that, like, in 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 the um, despotic machine, or at least in in the um, the despot society, the primitive um, order of things, right? The affiliated and the alliant, they're not gone. There's the the investments, the memory, like that old order serves the purpose of um, of being contrasted and sort of um, sort of like sort of counterposed by the new order right like the new order sort of relies on the old order to establish itself Yeah, that's actually something that I've thought about in relation to what we talked about um, in our last session when we talked about um, this whole repression business, like um, where we had um, this tri uh, the trifecta of... Uh, oh, I don't know what the actual terms in the context were, but um, we talked about signification or um, and when I went back to that, I asked myself whether they were talking about what's actually happening in the context that they describe. Like, is is the repression they talk about the repression happening in the societies 
that they talk about or are they talking about the repression as it is modeled by um, anthropology yes uh, repressed representative displaced representative and repressing representation like because I got the sense that they're kind of talking about what uh, how how um, anthropology models the uh, the re repression not so much about like specifically when they use these terms and that um, solves some conflicts about uh, what we, where we where we talked about um, what actually the real or, or like the the referent here can be like how can we have a fixed referent Yeah, I think that's a good investigation. One thing that um, comes to mind there for me is um, they, they, right, they're talking territorial representation. So maybe we could walk that out to anthropology, but it also seems important to recognize, too, that from the standpoint of like syllogisms and paralogisms, right, or like from the standpoint of um, of representation, which they, they use sort of psychoanalysis here, in contrast to um, anthropolo anthropology asking, what do things do, right? In some ways, that's that remark seems relevant, but also the remark that this representation that gets created seems to, seems to work with territorialization in the circulatory manner. At least that was, that's how I was understanding it. Yeah, I, I just like to refer you to the diagram on page 282, where they, they show the full body without organs, and then the projection back, you know, to the body of capital and the despotic body and the body of earth. And then the projection forward of the schizophrenic process of detorialization. You know, I think that diagram kind of summarizes what's happening here, which is that that you know we're we're at the level of the body of capital, and they're developing an ideal model of taking capitalism to its limit, and then basically. Based on that model, then they are projecting backwards these prior emergent events that are necessary for the 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 uh, for their ideal model. I don't know if it's ideal, but I do think I think you. The, I think it is wise to remember, too, that they do say this is a retrospective venture. Yes, when they say that this universal history is only possible at the end and that it's only possible after reaching capitalism, that's they're acknowledging that, um, that um, they are genealogy is not transparent and that's exactly why I'm kind of trying to find out what that actually means for their analysis and I think we have kind of skipping over that aspect 
Yeah, I think you have a good point. One thing that this diagram brings to mind is like the full body without organs, these lines going back to the body of the earth with, right? This is sort of like, seems to be like what we're, uh, I may be taking a great chance saying this, but at least for the context of our discussion and that only, it looks like this retrospective um, aspect comes with taking perversions as territorial entities to the body of earth, taking the paranoia at psychoses as despotic entities back to the despotic body, and taking Oedipal neuroses as familial entities back to the body of capital, capital money. So that seems to be a question of the full body of full body without organs taken as a, a point of departure retrospectively in connection with three sociuses. Yeah, and then when I say it's ideal, basically what I'm saying is they're taking capitalism and the deterritorialization of capitalism to its limit. And then using that ideal model of of the, you know, the the limit of complete deterritorialization, which would be schizophrenia, taking that model and then trying to figure out what are the emergent levels that are necessary to get to capital prior to it. That still sounds too Marxian for me. say that because this doesn't seem to be a continual progression of, of marching forward events like um, like Marxist history I think is more commonly written at least at this time right outside of like genealogists like Foucault and um, Deleuze and Guadri in this test well so I, I tradi- to, traditional to Marxism is very mechanistic in its conception of history so, you know, they're trying to go beyond that to create, you know, first of all, taking into account emergent events. And basically what they're saying is you've got to go forward and take whatever the, you know, whatever the situation you've got now, you've got to go forward and take it to its limit. And then once you take it to its limit, then you can understand the prior genealogical stages better where these emergent events occurred. prior to capitalism. You know, it's I, I think it's an interesting theory um, that they're propounding. Um, you know, and the, the fact is they've completely worked it out. So, you know, it's uh, it can be criticized because they've 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 written it all down. think we'll know more when we get through the rest of this chapter because it's I think it still remains to be seen what's going to go on with capitalism here 
Sure. Especially because the next chapter is, uh, the next section is entitled Barbarian or Imperial Representation. So this already seems to be, and these do seem to be the genealogical elements to me is like the socius, the territorial representations, and the territorial machines. Um, those at least seem to be three really critical elements of this. And I don't know if that gets at the concern Lou raised, because I, I don't know if I have an answer to that concern, though I do think it's a valid one. Um, regarding the genealogical elements, have you looked at the PDF I posted? Not, not, not in the last 10 minutes, no, I haven't. <laughs> That's a table that basically has these three um, ideal types um, and then the elements listed. Oh, that's cool. And these elements are taken from the text, I assume. Yes, yes. I actually don't know where I got this from and who made this. I think I got it from the server, but yeah. I have no idea. Well, that's kind of nice that the, someone's gone to that. But it'll take some study to figure out <laughs> what all this means. Okay, but we are over the time anyway. Sure. So, um, I like the diagram at the bottom. That's interesting too. Uh, but that's actually taken from the book. Like that's somewhere in the book. Is it? Oh, cool. I don't remember that. That's great. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Uh, uh, I'd like to pour over this and see if I can understand it. And with that, this will conclude the review session for Antiedipus Chapter 3, Section 6. Uh, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next Monday for Chapter 3, Section 7, and the review session on Tuesday, both of which, unless scheduling changes occur, in which you will be given due and timely notice, we will be hosting at noon PDT on both Monday and Tuesday.